Um, but we're going to be studying tonight, uh, you see there on your paper, uh, looking at uh, the burning bush and Mount Sinai. And uh, as we continue to kind of move towards the uh, introduction of the tabernacle, and we will get to that next week. Next week we'll be looking at the description of the tabernacle that's found in um, the later third of Exodus. Exodus 25 through 40 uh, talks about the, as just the descriptions of the tabernacle, uh, how to design it, how to build it, all the elements that are in there. And so that's kind of what we'll be talking about next week. But before we get there, um, remember, what do all the words uh, to describe the temple and the tabernacle, what do they imply? We've talked about this. What do they imply? Sir? Presence, right? Okay, so one thing, there's, there's actually a God dwelling there. It's not just a place of, it's not just a worship center where you go and look up. There's actually a God that dwells in those places. Um, what did some of the other words imply? What was the purpose of him being there? What did he want to do? What did God want to do? He wanted to meet with us, right? So he wanted to, it was a place where he dwelled. It wasn't just, you know, a house, like a vacation house where you want to disappear to and don't want anybody to come see you. This is where he dwelt, and he wanted people to come and meet with him there. It was a place of meeting. The tabernacle oftentimes is called the tent of meeting. And so um, we realized that throughout the garden, in the garden, that was the original temple, the original meeting place. Uh, all the words dealing with tabernacle and temple have that implication. And so we're going to look at these two other times of meeting between God and the people of Israel. Um, leading up to the establishment of the tabernacle. So that's what we're going to look at today. Um, I, uh, uh, you guys know I just finished kind of getting this PowerPoint together, so it's not quite as detailed as other weeks. It just kind of has the, the blanks as we go along and try to fill those in. So I'll try to keep up with those. If I forget some, Franz, that's your job. You let me know if I, if I forget some, okay? Uh, so you just let me know about it. So let's talk about the burning bush, okay? Okay. Um, both the descriptions of the burning bush and Israel's encounter with God on Mount Sinai have these temple parallels. So the first one uh, that we see is the burning bush. So let's uh, get my Bible out. It's pretty bad when the pastor starts preaching doesn't even have his Bible out, right? You pray for me? Thank you, Franz. Uh, all right, so Exodus chapter 3. Okay, Exodus chapter 3 is where we'll... We'll kind of start out, okay? Um, so we'll just start reading in Moses chapter, uh, in Moses chapter three, in Exodus chapter three, starting in verse one. It says now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the people of the Lord appeared to, him, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. And he lists all those different people. Verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so that's the uh, sort of the call of Moses and that encounter there at the burning bush. Um, so that's going to 
kind of cover our first part here of our study. So uh, a couple of things we see here. First of all is that uh, Moses' encounter with God in the bush is on the far side of the mountain. All right, It's on the far side of, of, uh, of the mountain. So he, he goes and, um, and, and he looks at, and he's out there tending his sheep and he's walking around the mountain, you know, taking care of his sheep. All of a sudden he looks over and he sees this bush and the bush is burning and it begins talking to him. Okay, that reminds me of a story I heard recently. Uh, y'all remember, y'all know President George Bush, right? He lives in Dallas, and he goes out, he's, a, you know, he's kind of fit, he, he, he's a fit kind of guy. He was out running one day, and he's running, he sees this guy standing on the sidewalk, he says, that looks like Moses. He says, hey, are you Moses? The guy didn't answer him. He said, hey, I said, are you Moses? And he said, uh, he just ignored him, didn't look at him. And he, so George called one of the Secret Service sent guys over, and he said, hey, Go ask that guy if he's Moses. And so Secret Service agent walked up and said, Hey, didn't you hear President Bush? He asked if you were Moses. He said, I heard him. It's just the last time I talked to a Bush, I spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. <laughs> so I don't know if this is the same encounter here or not. But um, Anyway, sorry, I just had to, had to tell that joke. It's not, it's not very often I get a good joke. And uh, I can't take credit for it, but, you know, that's a good joke. Um, so, so Moses is on the far side of the mountain. And what's interesting about this word uh, in Hebrew, the word that's translated far side, it could also be translated west side. Okay, so on the west side of the mountain, uh, Moses is tending his sheep, and he, he winds up running into this bush, okay? Now, what do we say about uh, how does east and west play into the description of people in relation to the garden as they exited the garden. What, where were they kicked out on? What side of the garden? The east side, okay? So as they traveled further and further away from God, um, it said they continued to get further and further away, so they were going you know, far, 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 far away. And so um, this is kind of implying Moses' journey away from God, and now he's turning back to God. You know, he's, he continued to go east. People continued to go east, continued to go east. Well, now uh, <coughs> Moses has turned. Now he's facing west, so he's... He's headed back towards God, so to speak. God, you know, the temple always faced east, so if you're looking west, you're looking into the temple. And so as he turns and gets onto the west side of the mountain, he has an encounter with God. And it says here in, in the scripture, um, uh, it says he was on the west side of the mountain. The angel of the Lord called out to him. Moses said, I'll turn and I'll go look. And verse 4 said, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. So when God recognized that Moses was responding to the bush, responding to the call, uh, responding to the attraction. That's whenever he called him out. And so God makes himself available to Moses, and Moses uh, responds. And so uh, God meets with him and, and welcomes him into his presence at that time. And so that's, that's the uh, burning bush, how it kind of implies that Moses was turning back to face back towards God, face back towards that, uh, that garden where people had been going away for so long. Okay? The next thing we see is that the bush continually burned, okay? It continually burned without going out. Um, and this kind of connects back to uh, the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, there was something in the middle of the, of the garden. What was that? There's, there's two trees. There's one primary tree. What was that tree? The tree of life, right? The tree of life, as described in Revelation, was always in bloom and always bearing fruit. Um, and so uh, it, was, it was not a tree, you know, our trees, which have a season where they bear fruit and then they you know, go away and then they lose their leaves and they come back and bear fruit again in a different season. It was a tree that is always in season, always bearing fruit. And so this uh, bush kind of parallels that because it's a bush that is burning, but it's never finished burning. It never gets consumed. It's continually burning. 
So it's got a parallel back to the tree of the garden, but it also has a parallel to the seven-branch lampstand, which was to never go out. Um, uh, you know, in the tabernacle or in the temple, you had that seven-branch lampstand, um, which they was uh, the, we'll, we'll see that next week. Um, but that lampstand, I mean, we just, we showed it last week, how it looked kind of like a tree. Uh, the oil in there was to never go out. I mean, they were supposed to have oil in there. When you light it, it's to never go out. So part of the daily practices was to refill that, the cups of the, that lampstand with oil so that it would never go out. So it's a bush or it's a seven branch lampstand. It looks like a tree and it's on fire. It's never going out. So it kind of symbolizes that, that presence of God. Okay. Um, so there's some, just a couple more parallels there. Um, the bush is designated as holy ground by God. Okay. See, Franz, you didn't tell me that I missed this one, man. I'm sorry. You got you to keep up. So, uh, so it's always in bloom and, and now it's bearing fruit. Uh, the bush is design, designated as holy ground by God or the area around the bush. And, uh, and so once uh, Moses, once he says, uh, when he tells Moses, you're on holy ground, he tells him something to do. What does he tell him to do? Take off your sandals, right? Because you're on holy ground. And so as Moses approaches the bush, God says, hold up, wait. You're approaching a holy place. You have to prepare yourself. And so Moses, basically, as, almost as a priest, is being approaching God, and he's having to prepare himself. Now, there was no ritual cleansing. He didn't have to go back down the mountain and wash himself a certain way or you know, wash his arm up to his elbows or sprinkle water on his head or anything like that. But the way that God told him to prepare himself at this moment was to take off his sandals. And so he's approaching God. Uh, God tells him, the presence of God. God tells him to prepare himself. So this is just like Moses is walking into the temple of God as he meets here with God. And so the, the presence of God in this place makes it, a, makes it, appear, um, makes it appear like a temple. Um, some people believe, some scholars believe, another parallel uh, here between the bush and the mountain is this play on words. Um, this is the, uh, the Hebrew word for bush. It's sinna. Okay? Uh, it's the Hebrew word for bush, uh, and it is very similar to the name given uh, to the mountain of God, which is Sinai. Okay, so Sinai is the word for bush, and mountain of God is, is the word Sinai. And so you've got this kind of play on words that, that you know, kind of Moses met the Sinai on the Sinai. He met the Sinai on the Sinai. And, and so God tells him, you know, this, on this, uh, this is the mountain of God, and on this mountain, later on, he says, after you've delivered the people out, you know, Moses said, how am I going to know that all this is true? Well, God says, after I do all this, I'll bring you back to this mountain. You'll worship me on this mountain. And so there's kind of a play on words um, that you see here. And, and another thing is you see that the senna, the bush, burned with the presence of God uh, in the Moses encounter. The sene, Sinai, burned with the presence of God in the encounter with the Israel. And then whenever God's presence comes into the tabernacle, how does it come? It comes in fire and smoke. And so there's still that, that continuing parallel where you see the presence of God, um, you see fire. So that's some of the things about the burning bush uh, that kind of uh, parallel with the, uh, uh, with the temple of God. Let's look at Mount Sinai. Okay? Uh, this mountain is designated as the mountain of God, and it's the location of the, uh, of the burning bush. So it's designated as the mountain of God. Here in this verse, um, <clears throat> verse 1, it's referred to, uh, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And so Horeb and, and Sinai are considered to be the same, uh, the same mountain. Um, and so he, 
it's uh, referred to as the mountain of God. Uh, God tells Moses in 3.12, you will worship me on this mountain. So this is the place where they're going to return to. And in Exodus 18 and, and chapter 24, uh, that this particular mountain is referred to as the mountain of God. So this is where God, uh, at least from the time of the burning bush to the time the tabernacle is built, this has become sort of the meeting place for Israel to meet with God. Um, you know, Moses meets with God here. Uh, we see uh, we see God encounter and talk to Moses after this point, but nothing like what we see here. Not like a face to face encounter. You know, Mo we we see God talking to Moses. We don't see like this face to face glory filled encounter until Israel gets back here, and then you see the mountain consumed with fire as God talks to Moses and as God gives him the commandments and gives him all the law, gives him the diagram for the uh, temple over the tabernacle and stuff like that. Um, so this place kind of becomes, this mountain of God becomes the temple or the, the meeting place here in this part of the, of the Exodus story. Okay? Um, something that's really interesting here that we can see about this, that we can kind of see that this is the temple of God, is that there are three levels of access on the mountain. Okay? There are three levels of access. Let me flip over a little ways here to uh, chapter 24. If you want to turn there with me, you can. Okay, so chapter 24. Um, <clears throat> so God is uh, uh, telling Israel to come to the mountain to worship him. So he's, he's giving them some, some directions on how to come up. So let's just read starting in verse 1. Verse 24, uh, God, speaking of God, he says, Then he said to Moses, come up, chapter 24, verse 1. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So Moses told all the people the words of the Lord. And, um, uh, and so Moses, let's see, uh, verse 9, Moses, Aaron, and Adab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders went up. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, uh, under his feet as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for, uh, for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And then in verse 12, God tells Moses to come on up. Um, and so you, you kind of see this, uh, this levels where they can come up and where they, where they uh, uh, can't go. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm forgetting my spot here where, it tells, where God tells them that uh, the people can approach, but there's not to approach too far. I think that was in chapter 19. Um, and so the people of Israel, yeah, verse not, chapter 19, verse 17, is when it says that the people of Israel may uh, approach the mountain uh, at the foot of the mountain. And so you know, if you've got the whole mountain top, you know, you've got, y'all ever been to Colorado, you know, where it's just kind of going flat, and then all of a sudden the mountains shoot up? So the people can come right up there to the edge. You know, when the mountains start going up, that's where the people have to stop. Um, and then from there, the Moses, Aaron, and his two sons, and these 70 elders, they can approach and go up further. But then there comes a point where God tells the, those others that they have to stay, and only Moses is allowed to come up. Now, at one time, Joshua goes up with Moses whenever Moses is receiving some commands from God. But typically, and in this, other, this later example, only Moses goes up, and he meets personally with God. So you've got three levels of, uh, uh, of access. So you've got the people can go to the foot of the mountain, Aaron and his, two son, his sons and the 70 elders can go partway up. And then Moses uh, can ascend to go all the way up and meet personally with God. And so there's three levels of access. 
Well, what does that parallel? What do you think? Hmm? The temple, right? In the temple, you've got three levels um, of access, the three places of access at the tabernacle in the temple. Um, and so all the people could access the outer courts. Y'all remember the picture we showed last week, how they had the kind of the, the tent of meeting there in the middle of the complex. Then you had this fence around the outside edge. But that whole thing was considered the tabernacle. And a lot of times when we think of the tabernacle, we think of the tent itself. But that outer court was considered a part of the tabernacle as well. Just like in the temple, you had the Holy of Holies. Then you had uh, the, uh, the, the outer room, the Holy, holy Room. Um, and then you had um, the outer court, you know, the court of men. You know, it was kind of what it became known as. Later on, they developed the court of women, and then they have the court of the Gentiles, and it just keeps getting further and further and further away from God. But you had these three levels of access, and all the people could come to the mountain and encounter God in that way, as God was there on fire in, in, in with, the, uh, with the mountain. Okay, so this is how it kind of parallels the, the, the tabernacle. What's really unique about this is, uh, is, what is how Israel is designated. Who, who gets access to a temple in a, in a religion you know, where they have this kind of sacrificial system where somebody goes in and sacrifices to a god? Who are the ones who have access to the temple to go and do that? The priests, right? You just, you know, Joe Blow off the street doesn't get to go in to the temple and start offering sacrifices. You know, they, get, they run him out, right? Only the priests have access to the temple. So how is Israel, how do they have access to the temple to the mountain of God if they're not priests because he calls all the people to the mountain well the cool thing about this is in Exodus 19 5 through 6 God designates all the people of Israel as priests he says you are all going to be a nation of priests to me he said you are all a nation of priests you know we have this parallel uh, when we get to the New Testament when Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood you know we are all priests that doesn't mean that I get to interpret the scripture myself. You know, we've, you heard that, that phrase that people talk, talk about the priesthood of the believer. And that's really a bad translation or a bad description of what this is talking about. Um, because did one priest get to decide what God said? Did Aaron get to decide what God said, what he meant? No, God spoke through the priest, but the priest didn't get to determine what was said. If I'm a priest of God, if I'm a priest in the nation of God, you know, as a, as a child of God now... Do I determine what God, what God's Bible says to me? No, I mean, God's Bible is, God, the Word of God is the Word of God, and there's only one thing that it says. Now, at some point it may apply to me uh, in a unique way that it doesn't apply to you. You know, just He speaks to me through it in a fresh way, but it's never going to contradict the Word. A lot of people kind of have taken this priesthood of the believer idea to say, hey, I don't need a church. I don't need to be a part of the church because God can speak to me. And I've got the Holy Spirit in me, so I don't really need the rest of the church um, because I'm a priest. I'm a priest of God. When the reality is that Scripture is talking about us being is the priesthood of all believers. So we are the priesthood. We are the priests of God. So we're serving and we're ministering and being a part of this this church family. But it doesn't mean that I can go, you know, Lone Ranger on the on doing my own thing and being my own priest to God because I've got this connection. God speaks uniquely through the church uh, to us as individuals, you know, uh, and as well as to the world. Getting back to Israel, they are all designated as priests, which gives them access to the mountain and later uh, to the tabernacle and to the temple. 
this was unheard of in religious cultures surrounding them because typically only priests were allowed to approach the temple in these cultures. And so whenever God designated them all as priests, he just threw the paradigm out the window, opened up a whole new realm of, uh, of access to God. And uh, one thing that we can see here is that uh, they had to cleanse themselves before approaching. And in uh, Exodus 19, 10 through 15, uh, God tells them how to cleanse themselves before approaching the mountain of God. So we can see that these, he has designated them as real, genuine priests, even to the point where they have to cleanse themselves, prepare themselves to go up to, uh, to the mountain. Okay? So, in, um, uh, so some implications here. Okay? Uh, we see that God's plan from the garden to the bush to the mountain to the tabernacle to the temple to our hearts has always been to be present with his people. Um, you know, we talk about that we are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, you know, that God uh, dwells in us and dwells with us, um, but that's nothing, you know, it's nothing new. The fact that God dwells inside of us is the new part, but the fact that God had a dwelling place where he desired meeting with his people, that's nothing new. That's the pattern that we see with God all the way from the garden, all the way through the, you know, the, the bush and the mountain and the uh, uh, the temple, the tabernacle, and the temple, and then to the place of our hearts. That's just the way that God wanted to connect with His people. And it's a pretty unique thing. You know, can you describe any other God that desire His His plan and everything that He has sought to do throughout history has been to have a connection with His people? You know, any other God that you see in any other religion wants is just domineering or wants to be feared or is wishy-washy, you know, or something like that. But we've got a God who is unique because he has always wanted to come and meet with his people. He has always wanted to uh, impact them in a way that, that moves them forward rather than holds them back. And, uh, and so that's the, guard, the, the God that we serve. And so that's one implication from this, is that this is just a part of God's plan. The temple and the tabernacle is not something that God said, you know what, we might need to figure out a place where you guys can worship me, so let's just try this tabernacle temple thing. You know, this was just God going from not having a physical place where you could look at it and say this was the temple of God uh, to getting to the place where you could have that. You know, up until this point, he kind of picked places. He had the garden, and he had, you know, the bush, he had, he had the mountain. But now he's got an actual physical place where they can look and they can say, hey, that is where our God dwells. That is the place where our God dwells and where he could go with them and still have a permanent dwelling, physical place. And I put on your notes, I put permanent in little quotation marks because... The temple becomes an actual permanent place, you know, like a building that's not going to move. The tabernacle obviously would move around and uh, wasn't a permanent structure, but it was still a permanent place uh, of meeting. Okay, so let's talk about some of the points here. The point of the bush was for God to meet with a man. Okay, the point of the burning bush was for God to meet with a man. He had a purpose for Moses. He had a plan for Moses' life, and the way that he chose to meet with Moses was to take that, that bush temple area and call Moses into meeting with him there in his presence. And uh, we see that manifest special presence of God there in that place. And so the point of the bush was for God to meet with a man, to meet with Moses, to change him. You know, whenever Moses leaves this place, he's a different man. Um, you know, kind of like uh, 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 Charlton Heston, whenever he runs into God, you know, he walked... I can't remember if it was at the burning bush or if it was at the Ten Commandments, but there's one of those places where when Charlton Heston goes meets with God, he comes out, he's an old man. You remember that? 
you know, and I can't, y'all might can remember where, where that was. Uh, is it whenever you got the tablets? That's kind of what I was thinking. Uh, but, you know, whenever just determination-wise, even though Moses still kind of has some lacking of confidence, whenever he leaves this bush, he's a different man. He's got a different purpose. He's heading back to Egypt. And um, so he's a, he's a changed man when he walks here and meets with God. So the point of the bush was for God to meet with a man and to call him out and to designate him as his purpose person for saving his people. The point of the mountain was to meet with the people. Okay? The point of the mountain was to meet with a group of people, the Israelites, where God said, hey, this is my manifest presence. My plan and my desire is to meet with you. You remember for, for 400 years they had been in Egypt. They had been crying out to God, and God had not been giving them an answer. And God had foretold this. He had predicted this to Abraham. He said, hey, your people are going to have the promised land, they're gonna, uh, but they're going to be enslaved for 400 years, and then I'm going to call them out by my mighty hand. And so God had already predicted this. This was not an accident. They accidentally fell into the hands of Egypt. This was a part of the plan, and God's sovereign over that. We don't know what the full purpose of that plan is, but God does. Then we can kind of make some implications from it. But the point of this mountain was for God to meet with the whole people and for, them to, for him to be able to say to them, hey, you are all my nation of priests. You are all called to serve before me, to worship me, to offer sacrifice to me. Um, you're all called to be my priests and to be my representatives. So that was the point of the mountain. Yes, yes, yes. Back in 1905, mm -hmm. it, I'm struggling with something. Okay. Because what it said was that God said, if you will obey me fully and keep my commandments, then I will make you a nation of priests. Mm -hmm. That feels contradictory to what God tells us about our salvation. That almost seems like the Israelites could be good enough you know, to receive a blessing from God and mm -hmm. being uh, priests. Yeah, uh, well, that's that. Go ahead. I, I don't know. I'm just struggling with that concept because that's what my translation says. Mm -hmm. Now, now, if you obey me fully, mm -hmm. right. So, right. You're right. Now it says because there there is that that if statement in there, and that is that that um, condition <laughs> conditional covenant uh, of. Uh, um, the Moses covenant is a conditional covenant. You know, well, we all know that they didn't, and they still have it. Right. Yeah, they they lose that uh, status, I guess, when God leaves the temple. You know, in, in Ezekiel forty-seven, I believe, when God leaves the temple, and His presence doesn't enter again until Jesus walks into it in Matthew twenty-two, twenty-four, somewhere in there. Um, you know, that that whole time frame, God is out of the temple, and they kind of lose. They basically lose that covenant relationship that they had with God. Because God made has made four covenants. He had the covenant with Noah, which is with us, that is a one-sided, one-directional covenant, um, that he would not destroy the earth by water again. Um, then you had the covenant with Abraham, which was one-directional. He would give them the promised land. Um, that wasn't, there was no condition there. So that land still belongs to them. And I believe in 1945, was that when it was, when they, they came back to the land, that that was God renewing renewing that. It wasn't that it was never their land for that time period. He's just bringing them home, basically. 
But then when you get to Moses, that that if is in there. If you'll do this, then I'll do this. And so, um, you know, he gave them plenty of opportunities to obey, and they never did. Um, uh, well, I wouldn't say they never did. They they did like this, you know, up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, but the whole purpose of them was to be that nation of priests, to be an example to everybody else of what people who follow God is. Um, since they ultimately completely rejected him, he leaves. Um, but then now, are you so are you saying, how does that equate to us and our salvation now, being a royal well, priesthood? That's, that's that kind part of, the, of the contradiction that, mm-hmm. that, that hits me about it. Right. We can't earn our salvation. Mm-hmm. We can't be good enough. We can't mm-hmm. follow all the rules and do all the things mm-hmm. and, and receive that blessing from God. Right. And, and yep. And so that's and that's where the that's where the fourth covenant comes in, which is a one directional covenant. If you, or it, it's unconditional once you enter into the covenant relationship. Um, Jesus said that uh, you know there at the Last Supper, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is you know given for you. And so um, he uh, in that in that situation, we enter into that covenant relationship. We're covered by the blood of Christ. So even though we as fallen sinful man still struggle and still sin. When God looks at us, he looks at that saved, regenerated life. And so we are saved under the covenant um, because when God looks at us, he sees, he sees us without sin. So we are, are able to be that, that nation of priests or that, that royal priesthood. And so there's not an opportunity for us to lose that salvation, if that's what you're, if that's what you're kind of getting at. I didn't really have a point of it. Yes, yeah. that's all right. That's why we're here, just to kind of discuss it. And that's kind of off the top of my head, kind of how I would answer that. I know we'll get to that more when we get to the New Testament, talk about being a nation of priests and, and the new temple and stuff like that. We'll, we'll kind of address that some more. Um, but yeah, if y'all have questions, just, we'll, we'll try to answer them the best we can. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so we'll see. We were, we were talking about the, uh, the mount. So the point of the bush was for God to meet with a man. The point of the mountain was for God to meet with that people. The point of the tabernacle was for God to meet with the people in the midst of other peoples. And so the tabernacle becomes a transportable place where the presence of God dwelled uh, visibly with his people. Um, so I want to kind of think about it this way. Imagine that, you know, you're a, a, a back in the time of Israel, and, and you see Israel, the, you hear the people of Israel are coming, you've heard about them before, and you see them coming over the mountain, and there's this... Uh, cloud or fire and smoke that's going before them and then they kind of set up camp in this valley and you look down there there's this big tent in the middle of the people like right dead middle everybody else is camped around it and during the day there's this cloud of smoke above it and at night that cloud is covered in fire and you see that every you see that first night you think well that's kind of cool and the second night wow they keep that going three weeks later that fire has never gone out that smoke has never stopped you think man that is an amazing people that can worship their God with that continuous fire that never goes out. And so you begin asking somebody, hey, you know, how do you, how do you keep that fire going to your God? That's just impressive. And they say, oh, no, no, that's not a fire that we're making. That's the glory of the presence of our God. Our God lives in that tent. And it's just the fact that he's so awesome that that fire and that smoke go up continuously because he's, that's where he lives. That's his house. And so they, they begin thinking, wow, my God never does that. You know, my God just kind of sits in his temple and is just there. He never talks. He never winks. He never, you know, throws anything down. Our God 
is nothing compared to that God. Then they began questioning, well, hey, maybe my God is not as good as that God. Maybe my God is, is not a God at all. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, I should go worship their God because their God seems obviously more powerful than my God. And so that was some of the purpose of, of that tabernacle. Because we've already seen that God can meet with his people anywhere, right? He doesn't have to have a building. But for a God to kind of be considered a, a valid God back then, he had to have a dwelling place. And so that gave him a dwelling place where he could live in the midst of his people. No matter where his people went, as they went away from the mountain of God, no matter where they went, you know, they were supposed to go from there to the promised land, but they messed that up and they had to wander around for 40 years. But then, you know, wherever they went, there was this tent, this place of meeting where God dwelled in them, with them all the time. And that became, a, became a, a, basically a signal, a representative to the people around them. You know, that's just, we just have to, we have to come to that conclusion. And so that kind of brings us to this last question. What is the point of your temple? You know, what is the point of your temple? Or we could even say, what's the point of you as a tabernacle? You've become the mobile dwelling place of God. Just like the people of Israel took that tabernacle with them everywhere you go, you, me, we as the temple of God take the glory of God with us wherever we go. And so when people see us, they should say, wow, you know, what he's got, I don't have. Uh, the way that he has joy and peace in this life, I don't have that. You know, I've got these other things. I've got a lot more money than that guy's got. I've got a lot better stuff than that guy's got. I've got a lot uh, you know, better job than that guy's got. I've got. I've got a lot more potential and a lot better future than that guy's got. How come he's happier in life than I am? Why does he have a, a peace about him that I seemingly can never have? And they just began wondering, well, maybe... All these things that I've got over here in this hand aren't anything compared to what he's got. What has he got? And they go ask. And you say, hey, it's not about the stuff. It's about my God. And what you see coming out in my life is not about me. That's just the presence of my God in me coming out and displaying itself in the world around me. And so we have basically become the mobile tabernacle of God out in the middle of the world. And we serve as his priest. We serve as representing him and serving him and is worshiping him and is telling people about him, being the, the ones who spread the gospel message. And so that just kind of brings us back to this question. If that's the point of our temple, then how good is our temple doing? You know, James has already brought up the fact that Israel did not do a real great job, <laughs> you know, especially when you get in the book of Judges. You know, we're, uh, uh, we went through that in Bible study. Or we're going through that in Bible study. You see this up and down motion, you know. They did the judges always up and down, up and down, up and down. And then uh, they get the kings. The kings are up and down, up and down, mainly down, you know, up for a little while. Then the king, kingdoms get divided. One gets conquered, and then the other one gets conquered. And then they cry out. God brings them back, and, you know, gives them some reprieve. And then they get, they mess it up again. They, God says, fine, I'm out of here. And, uh, and then he goes on to step to plan to the next part. I'm not going to say plan two, to the next part of the plan, which is the coming of Jesus. Uh, and so God has always been trying to dwell with his people. And now that he dwells with us and he dwells within us, we have the opportunity to be that presence out in the world around us. The only thing is, what makes it even better, though, is that he's got a lot more than one. <laughs> he's got a lot more than one tabernacle now. And that presence of God can penetrate all these little areas of the world around us. So, uh, man, I just encourage you to be that, uh, that place of God's very real and obvious presence and dwelling 
everywhere that you go. And I know I know that you guys are. You know, I've I've talked to some of y'all and talked about how you've been able to uh, reach into your 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 workplaces and uh, and have little times of gospel moments, so to speak, where you have spoken into somebody's life or encouraged somebody or invited somebody to church. One thing, I, you know, Ramey, whenever he used to, used to have training, you know, for guys coming all over the country, and he would, you know, if they were here over a weekend, he'd bring them to church. You know, what a tremendous, tremendous way and and uh, and to, to spread that, that light to people that he's only going to meet once in his life, probably. Um, and I know many of you have those same kind of stories that, that you shared with me. Um, and so we need to just be that light wherever we can go. Allow God to use us wherever He can go. Um, the number one place that I hope you'll show your light is in your family, in your home. And uh, you guys are, many of you are tremendous husbands, tremendous fathers, uh, tremendous uncles, and, uh, grandsons, and all, all kinds of stuff. And, and thank you. Yeah, grandpas, there's a few grandpas in here. You know, most of, most of you are, aren't old enough to be grandpas. Right? You know. uh, but, you know, that's the number one place that God has given you to shine that light and be that gospel presence. And, and I hope that you will do that. And I know just seeing some of the fruit of some of your children's lives, uh, that, that that is true. Uh, and so I, I pray that you'll shine that light there and then shine it in our church. We desperately need uh, that light in our church uh, and need it to shine out through us. So, Any other questions, any comments, corrections? It's really good. I, I don't think I've ever really thought of it all like this and to mm-hmm. See the parallel to me. Mm-hmm. Just kind of you know, hear you know, Christ and you know, you kind of just hear that in me, in me. But to think of it in this mm-hmm. way really does kind of changes it for me. Right. In terms of That's good. Good. Cool. Good job. Very good. Yes, sir. Pastor, one one of the things that has always captivated my attention about the experience of Moses in the burning bush has been the fact that that it was not until Moses turned about and gave God his full attention mm-hmm. that God began to speak to him. You know, he was tending the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro uh-huh. and probably when he saw that burning bush, his first thought was to protect those sheep. Mm-hmm. But then it, it says specifically that when God saw him turn about, mm-hmm. then he began to speak. And it, and, and it kind of gets my attention about how many distractions we have. Mm-hmm. You know, when we meet with God, those distractions need to be put aside. If we really want to hear God, mm-hmm. if we want, really want to get involved in what God wants us to get involved in, then we, we've got to get rid of everything else mm-hmm. and know that He is of primary importance. Right. And you know, and his the what Moses did in that moment shows that he did just that. That he gave God primary. Because you think about it, how how it doesn't take us long to read this passage. What five minutes maybe to read all of chapter three? But you know, it it had to take longer than five minutes. You know, for him to tremble a little bit while he's trying to unbuckle his sandals, and then for him to crawl out there to the bush. You know, these things just happen like that when you're reading the scripture. But he just what happened to the sheep? <laughs> you know. A, a, a real shepherd is not going to leave his sheep because there's some danger somewhere, especially up on a mountain. They're going to walk off a cliff somewhere. But he gives God that full attention, and he just, see you later, sheep, and I'm going to go check out this burning bush. and Because uh, you know the sheep didn't follow him all over to a burning bush. They probably, he probably ran the other direction. Uh, but, yeah, that's a good point. 
Yeah, Sean. On, uh, back in the, in the garden, uh -huh. did God already know that they were going to sin? Absolutely. He already yeah. knew. Mm -hmm. That's why he placed them there for that to be a sacred place. Mm -hmm. Well, we, you know, yeah, we believe you know God knows everything from first to last. He knows your, he knows your last second and from before your first second ever starts. You know, um, and we, he gives a little glimpse of that, in uh, at the end near the end of chapter three when he's handing out the curses, um, and he talks about the serpent being an enemy of the offspring of the woman, and uh, he <coughs> says that uh, you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head, and they the uh, a lot of Theologians call that the first gospel, uh, just kind of the first indication that there's going to be a time where the offspring of the woman and Satan have a battle, and Satan's going to going to hurt him, but the offspring of the woman, Jesus, will have ultimate victory. And so, you know, even there, you know, God already had that He had that plan in place. He knew what it was going to what it was going to be. So, good question. Hard concept for us to understand that God's not confined by time. Like right. Are, yeah. Which is hard to wrap your mind around, but mm -hmm. probably just to It's a great it's forever ago for us, but it's right now to God. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's not constrained by time. 